Now, boys and girls, it's time again. Again, again, again. This is the PowerShell Podcast. PowerShell Podcast. You girls and boys will have lots of fun. It's all about PowerShell and the PowerShell community. Power to the people. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the PowerShell Podcast. I'm co-host Jordan Hammond with the other fellow, also co-host, Andrew Plaw. Hello. And, and today we got a special guest, James Brendage, who we got to talk with at the summit. And we're like, kind of excited to talk to him about uh, what he's been working on. Hi. I've just uh, been a PowerShell nerd for about forever. Uh, I actually helped build PowerShell at Microsoft uh, versions two and three. Uh, I joined the team like, what, a week or two after PowerShell one came out? So been there kind of since mostly the beginning uh and i've made a fun interesting career out of well helping people with their powershell and building useful powershell that kind of expands what powershell can do for us all i've also really really enjoyed uh fighting the long-term battle for powershell's respect uh proving that you can do this that or the other thing in powershell and seeing where that leads us all as a community so that that kind of runs into, I guess, how I approach it at work. At work, I get asked a lot, can you do this in PowerShell? And I always just answer, yes. It's just how much time it's going to take, or, or I don't know how to do it yet, but the answer is yes. Can you do this in PowerShell? Sure. I mean, generally, yeah, by hook or by crook. I mean, like, even if you're calling some of their executable, which is doing the job, you can still call it from PowerShell. Ergo, I still did this from PowerShell. Like, even if I have to click through that executable in the UI, I'm sure I can manage a way to do this in PowerShell. It's really just a matter of how ugly it's going to be. And on that, like, uh, I mean, this is actually probably in the uh, the kind of newbie to intermediate understanding to kind of absorb sort of category. But, oh, man, do I really wish your average developer would think of building good libraries first and good XEs second and good object design that is easy to use from other ecosystems because about half the time you can actually work with something say on a library level but you'll find that the XE ends up being a little bit more clean even though it shouldn't be because the libraries end up being such a mess. On the other half of the time, you will find a perfectly done library with absolutely no executable surfacing how to use it or giving you a sense of like what it really can do. So, yeah, it'd be really nice to build libraries and it'd be really nice to build examples so we can use those libraries. Um, when you say libraries, what's an example of, of a library in this context? And what's an example of a good one, if you know of any? Because you're mentioning that they don't always do it well. Uh, it would probably be easier to give examples of bad ones, um, at least off the top of my head. The only ones that I would say are somewhat good reliably are the, the core.net ones. Library is a high-level kind of catch-all language agnostic term for the way you load up code. So... You know, technically, like what a library is, is different language to language. So in PowerShell, a library is a module, but nobody really calls modules libraries, just not, you know, our vernacular. Uh, it's 
common enough to still hear of libraries used with C-sharp people. They'll often call them assemblies, which is their problem or proper name in that case. If you go into C++ C territory, that's where libraries are the official name of the thing. Again, a DLL or a SO file. So these basically store the implementation of a thing, but aren't the executable that you run. So that's why programmers don't have to always make it from scratch. They can use libraries for the groundwork or stuff that's been done before, and then they just build on build on it. Yeah, in fact, actually, that's true at any level of development, including good old scripting. If you want to get there faster, you want to build on top of other people's code. That's what other people's code is generally there for. You know, so. I personally like building things people can build on top of. Sometimes I'm a little frustrated when people don't uh, realize that these things exist and then do things in a convoluted way anyway. But say la vie. With that task, though, of like, you're trying to solve a problem with PowerShell and you want to see if another library exists, how do you approach that? How do you kind of go about finding if previous projects exist? Uh, I don't want to jump right into screen sharing, uh, but like there are two high-level tools. The one we all know is, uh, we'll call it Google Foo. Uh, I want to look online to see what seems like it might fit the bill. I don't want to necessarily invest my whole day in it. Um, so the one I'll tend to do more directly, uh, and this is also just kind of great trickery to know, is look through all loaded types. So if I'm looking for a particular keyword, uh, I can do something like uh, app domain. So bracket app domain, get a static class in PowerShell, colon, colon, or sorry. Yeah, colon, colon, current domain, get the current application domain. App domains where all the assemblies are stored. Then you can dot get assemblies, should get you all loaded assemblies, pipe that to for each object, dollar under bar dot get types. Now that'll get you every type that's loaded currently. And save that off into a variable. You go explore that with a rare object. I think there are a couple of commands that do this now. Might even be as simply named as get type. But it's it's a good general purpose trick to be able to start looking for something that might be able to do the job. I also have a really old dusty module that I haven't given a lot of love to called discovery that allows me to get prog IDs and uh, I believe also search WMI. So between A, B, and C, I'll be able to say, hey, what's currently on the system that could help me? That's not always enough. Sometimes you'd have to then take that and say, all right, there's not something that seems like a good solution here. Go to Google or take a type name that you find there. And, oh, that looks like it might be it. Uh, Again, go to Google, ask documentation. Hopefully they have it and try to make a judgment call. Uh, I also generally try to uh, see how much resistance I get using a library. And by that, I mean, like, if I try to open it up, play around with it, if it seems like it's being a hard time, I'm going to see if I can find an easier one. Um, And getting into a lot more hairy topics, sometimes you won't be able to. And that you kind of want to sort of reverse engineer what that library is doing and then see if it's too complicated for itself. 
Um, like a good example is if you'll find a library that say just somewhat awkwardly talks to a REST API, that all that it's really doing is calling some endpoint with some particular authorization headers, right? Well, you can build that with invoke REST method and you don't need the API at all. So if it's being a hard time to use that particular API, you might want to see if you could do it directly. Sorry, that's a bit of a meandering answer. It is a very specific sort of query. Like uh, if I'm trying to find the name of some general collection I can't remember, I can definitely do that by looking at loaded types. If I'm trying to find, here's one that I don't know off the top of my head. What's a good library for handling MIDI controllers? I don't know that one. Google might tell me. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. So it's it's kind of an approach. Instead of going straight to Google, you kind of find out what's actively going on your machine first and try to solve it that way. So it's, you kind of, you kind of laid out the roadmap of querying locally first to see if it's already in your system before you go out uh, out to Google. Uh, yeah. Uh, the other thing of it is, and this has kind of been one of the mantras of the week for other reasons. Uh, reflection don't lie. So um, understanding how to load up a given type and peek at it and start to kind of figure out how to work with it, especially from PowerShell, uh, is a very powerful thing. Um, if you have a development team that isn't so great about documentation, well, you can't have code that works and not at least have it reflectable and have some basic types that go into and out of it. So if you're really bad at documentation, I can use this sort of reflection technique to kind of peer back and look at what's going on. And the same thing's sort of true in terms of cutting through the chaff of Google or, you know, if like anybody things, um, chaff of search results. If you have a, like a lot of extra filler text or, you know, ad filled pages trying to kind of tell you how to do X, Y, or Z, that can be daunting. But if you have a few specific classes that you're looking up documentation on, that tends to be a lot cleaner. So if you find the class first and then go to Google to figure out if that class seems like it rightly answers the problem, then great. And here I am using more interchangeable terms. Class is an, another word for a, the declaration of an object, which often has that keyword in most languages, but it is often exported in libraries, including in PowerShell or C++ or C Sharp. Um, you mentioned you've been fighting the long-term battle for PowerShell's respect. Um, what are some kind of successes or instances where like, you feel like you've kind of pushed the limits and have been like, wow, this project is really awesome? Um, uh, well, let's start small and big. Um, nobody uses the ISE anymore, and that's relatively fine but we almost all did for years before VS Code came out. And there was a whole uh, internal debate about a particular thing in PowerShell, uh, thread mode. Uh, the thread mode of PowerShell at this point, I believe in the console as well, is uh, single-threaded. So if you're in one run space, just typing out commands in PowerShell, it'll all be running on that same thread. This wasn't always the way. In fact, in V1, uh, it was actually creating a new thread for every given command that you'd run. 
and this was the default behavior of PowerShell, period. This was actually a limiting default behavior because what it did was blocked off a huge section of .NET from PowerShell. Because, well, basically all of UI needs to be single-threaded. So by having that kind of limitation there, you could do some really basic WinForm stuff, but only because WinForms was tolerant of that. You couldn't do anything WPF. Uh, you couldn't really do anything pinvoke uh, or you know more like old C++ style UI, uh, which you can with some awkwardness in PowerShell, but you, you just couldn't use anything UI. And... Um, Basically, in one of the betas, uh, the developer of uh, ISE was uh, Lucio Silvera, and I had started to, you know, cajoled, convinced, mentioned, hey, we've got these single-threaded limitations here. Uh, this is not a detail that most people care about. It's even more limiting inside of the ISE. What if we just, you know, for this beta, just, like, made that single-threaded default instead of a multi-threaded default there and see if anybody complains and see if anybody can do anything cool and well nobody complained and uh joel bennett uh built uh power boots and i built wpk and later those two merged to become show ui um and we started building wpf uis and powershell all because one line of code was changed in PowerShell ISE to be able to support it. Uh, I guess three or four lines of code, if I'm counting a uh, command line parameter to be able to switch it on PowerShell XE. I think that actually was already there, though, so it doesn't quite count. Nice. And you did but that yeah, while internal? Yeah, I did that uh, well between versions uh, one and two, as two is in beta. It's like, yeah. Come on, there, there's scenarios where we could use single-threaded. You might as well try. Go see what happens. Wow, that's pretty cool. And so, can you? what was the name of that project you ended up, uh, once your projects converged, what was the ultimate? Um, well, to call the ultimate is to you know suggest that Joel or I have been investing time in, in the last few years. But uh, show UI. Um, this uh, is a... WPF toolkit for building applications in PowerShell. You can do like new graphical button. applications. Yeah. New button, cool. double quotes, click me, dash on underscore click, dollar window dot close. That sort of simple syntax. Cool. So you don't so, have to really dive deep into WPF and learn a lot of stuff. You can approach it using a library or a PowerShell module that has taken a lot of that legwork out and you can use more like human readable code to kind of create uh, a quick GUI to do something awesome um, and have some interaction there. Cool. Yeah. And that uh, also kind of, uh, I don't know, it, it moved the uh, needle for what people thought PowerShell was capable of. I did a bunch of Channel 9 videos on the topic, I uh, got about a quarter million views or so on them. So um, people could kind of see that PowerShell could be as interesting as other languages, maybe even more so. I um, think uh, one that you should be able to find out there, uh, if either of you want to screen share and bring it up, is uh, 
how to write a multi-touch uh yeah painter in like 30 lines of code or something like that um Inter? yeah just a wpf multi-touch paint uh my name channel nine that should generally lead you back there search is kind of great like this Awesome. Let's see if we can pin it. We don't generally do a screen share, but we get very few viewers on YouTube. So usually when it comes to screen share, we, we try not to because we feel like we uh once we start showing we lose a lot of the That's translation. Right. We will people. go ahead and include the link in the description <laughs> below. I believe is the, the parlance. Hey, that, yep, that's check a, the that's show a notes. Got right there. <laughs> yeah, this sorry. Guy. If you watch enough YouTube and listen to enough podcasts, <laughs> you know. Please like, share, and subscribe. Support on Patreon if you thought that. <laughs> Look at that. We you, don't. you don't even have to show at the end. Now it's been done. I wish to show. Oh, absolutely. So I like that you said you're fighting the long-term battle for PowerShell respect. I feel like you've won, right? Like PowerShell's anymore going to sysadmin. More often than not, it's a requirement to get the job. Um, I, I thank you for saying it that way i kind of do too but i also uh the, when i was fighting it the hardest it did not feel that way um uh this is a hard thing to describe but it, it's a real experience and i i can only kind of like give insight into the joy this isn't one that you can generally just happen upon but um when powershell started it was a 30 person team uh, inside of Microsoft when I joined it. Um, and it's never been a fantastically large team. Uh, it has almost always punched well outside of its weight in terms of what it did for Microsoft, did for the industry at large. And when you you know first had that group of people building it, everybody was very passionate and interested and trying to make this language the best it could be. And also, uh, just at the start of a really, 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 really steep Sisyphean hill. Uh, and we're all trying to kind of roll this rock up together and making sure PowerShell can do everything it needs to do. And also making sure people can see the joys and benefits of PowerShell. This, especially inside of Microsoft, was a very direct battle, uh, you know, team by team you know, trench by trench as it was to kind of get people to see the benefit of PowerShell. Uh, in fact, one of the early fun joys there was uh, I used to do uh, the first PowerShell user group internally as just kind of a couple of hours, get help with your scripts hot on block time. And all random corners would show up just kind of at any level of PowerShell adoption, just trying to figure out how to do X, Y, or Z. Uh, so this is also how say you know little things with it being impacted how people started playing around with powershell and open xml which has led to projects like import excel um that sort of original genesis that trench by trench battle of oh hey you're fighting the you know standards battle for office xml why don't you go use some powershell to demonstrate what you can do with that cool, now a whole toolkit can exist out of that area and you have helped further your internal battle and your external battle with PowerShell and PowerShell's one another friend. So it was a lot of that after that after that. And 
you know, then I left Microsoft and I started consulting. And that since then has been kind of less direct engagement in that greater battle and more individual. All right, let me help this company or that company get a hold of what PowerShell can do for them. And then sort of weird things started happening over time. So a few years after I left, um, well, I no longer had to, you know, tell people what PowerShell was. Uh, there was a baseline expectation that they would know it. Uh, that's also where a lot of cool gigs started to come out of the woodwork of, hey, we wanted to find a really cool PowerShell person. We heard you might be able to help. Uh, we got want to do this crazy fun thing in PowerShell. Couldn't you help? Um, so you know, we can get back to some of those in a bit, but the, the real fun point of that journey came about, I'm going to say seven or eight years ago, when I would start to go into a data center and see row after row after row after row of boxes running PowerShell to manage the data center. And that's a really great proud Papa moment. Like it's like you fought this battle for PowerShell's acceptance and PowerShell is now so accepted that it's everywhere in your field. And uh, on another kind of dumb uh, PowerShell love note, uh, if you start to watch movies past that time frame, well, you'll see them more and more commonly, the little like blue PowerShell window in the background. Uh, they're not running core. Occasionally, you'll see a core window in more recent movies. It's, it's even become one of the Hollywood choices for how to present hacking or programming is running PowerShell. And that, that is the point you really know you arrived when even some dumb set designer can be like, you know what language needs to be on this screen right here? PowerShell. Uh, in fact, a uh, really dumb connection point here. Uh, if anybody has seen uh, The Boys on Amazon Prime. I just uh, finished it last week. I've been obsessively watching it for like six days in a row to get through well, all the seasons. If you, if you go back to... Uh, I'm just going to call it one of the internal disputes for anybody that hasn't watched the boys yet. Uh, but right in Vought Tower, they they do have uh, some PowerShell windows up in the control room, and certain characters get smashed into them. So wow. That's I have to go awesome. back and rewatch it now. I have to. Yes, they're they're very blink and you miss it, but once you get attuned to it as a PowerShell user and lover, it's like, haha, we won. Yes. We've come a long way from three hand hacking in uh, NCIS. <laughs> what? I'm not familiar with that oh, one. So in as it's NCIS. Actually, I was watching it late at night, and I woke my wife up because I excited shouted, "I'm awake for three hand hacking." But what it is is someone's hacking into their environment, and and the lady is typing as fast as you can to to defeat the hacking, and then another guy comes in, starts typing on the same keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's amazing. And then like, the oh, those keys aren't it, being touched. And then the way to defeat it is they unplug the machine. Like, if they're in the network, that's going to... Oh, well, that's, there's nothing. Yeah, that'll totally get... Uh, <laughs> that, you're fine now. Yeah, so, three-hand uh, hacking was the first... It was the first uh, introduction for me. I guess there's there's hackers, but that's all their technology. But we've come a long way now. There's actual, accurate information. Uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, yeah. Uh, on uh, kind of a embarrassing corollary note i had one show uh i think it was uh, arrow 
that has like some super hacker lady that at some point that's just completely broke me of the show just because it was such a bad character research break. Ask somebody, so how's your SQL? You know, I was thinking of putting SQL on my resume. And it was like, okay, well, I, th- I think like if you wanted to actually put it on your resume, you might want to pronounce it SQL. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard somebody say it SQL. <laughs> That's funny. When I got- like, I think like the point that people are asking a question about it, they know to call it SQL. That's something that I would say, but that's, you know, where I sit with my SQL. Yeah. I would also think if I just read it on the page. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I guess maybe one person, but yeah. Um, so we've come a long way, but we have not come to the point where they're actually accurately using this. Well, I, I think uh, your CW series are different than like your, your Mr. Robots for accuracy. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, I, I will point out, though, if, if Hollywood devs ever want to build like the best progress bars that are programmatically accurate, look, if you write progress and then you build a scripted UI around the right progress, you can, you know, intercept that progress message, turn it into whatever progress bar you'd like for your Hollywood movie and still have it accurately updating. And that's truly the important thing, right? If they say, you know, three seconds left, it has to be three seconds left. True. That'd be cool to see a GitHub project around that. Sure. Uh, maybe I'll get to it after more useful things. All right. I think that, that can get us out of that cul-de-sac. Well, you, you've already got the pinnacle of uh, GitHub projects uh, with your, you build an arcade. Oh yeah. You yeah. mentioned you wanted to talk about that one. Powercade. Um, Power Power yeah. Arcade. Uh, we were all bored in 2020 in our ways and trying to do fun things with it. And I decided to do a really uh, interestingly complicated April Fool's Day joke with the scintilla of programming truth. Um, for those that aren't aware, you can go to uh, github.com slash start automating slash power arcade. You can download this trick. You can play Nibbles 2020 uh, amongst another few games. I believe there's also a blackjack. Um, basically I decided to revive a thing that people did actually way back in PowerShell one. Uh, there's a version of PowerShell space invaders. Uh, and what? I, I, said, I thought everybody knew BS invaders. I, well, I, w- I was late to PowerShell. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I think I missed a lot of the good stuff. Oh, I didn't even realize that the, Drop date for this was April 1st. Yeah. Because I had a blast with it. If it's an April Fool's joke, it doesn't matter. I'm having fun. I'm glad you're having fun. (laughs) I mean, like, it's also, you know, programmatically accurate. We'll we'll get back to some potential future fun in a second. But, like, let's explain it for the people listening. Um, So, um, basically, I like building things in PowerShell that people don't necessarily think you could in PowerShell. And one of those things that you wouldn't expect you could build in PowerShell is a game. Even though there is the old, you know, Space Invaders clone in PowerShell, it's not something people have done tons of. And, you know, I'm not really recommending that people open a game studio on top of PowerShell, at least at this point. Um, It is possible, however. Like, if you're really asking yourself, 
essentially what a game is. A game is kind of a persistent event loop. You just have something like a, a while loop running. You know, you collect input from the user, joysticks, keyboards, whatevers, and you do things. It's just like any other program. It's just a program that's not designed to run and exit. It's a program that's designed to continue running. And that sort of way, it's sort of similar to a Windows application, but Windows applications are more event-oriented, whereas games are more loop-oriented. So your, your average expectation, you're building a, a UI and say WPF, WinForms, or anywhere else is like you're going to have a button, it's going to be clicked, then you're going to run some code. In a game, you're going to be running this loop basically as fast as you can, and roughly every X number of seconds, you might want to run some code to update portions of the game, and you're going to want to have some degree of concepts of, say, sprites, basically things running into each other. You're going to want to be able to handle collisions and object interactions. And um, Power Arcade does all that stuff for you. Uh, you have a basically a directory. It has a game subdirectory, a level subdirectory, and a sprite subdirectory. Each sprite subdirectory, subdirectories of that are the name of the sprite. And inside of that, you'll have a PSD one describing like its core properties, uh, like what color it should be, what its you know property or what it's like height or weight would be initially something like that um then inside of there you'll have a uh, few script methods basically so you'll have uh say dot snake dot dies right and that will handle what happens declaring the script method on that object for a snake in in nibbles 2020 and making the snake die and changing the game based off of that. So basically, it's an easy way to kind of wire up these script methods to these sprites, get them moving around the screen. Um, kind of shout out to a very old other useful project here. Uh, there's Easy Out, which is the way I build formatting in PowerShell, and that I uh, used to basically build some formatting for those sprites. So when I basically just show them without host, it puts them in the right point on the screen and then moves them around. So you just draw the screen, move the sprites, keep doing that, and you have a game. Uh, sprites hit other sprites. They do what they're going to do according to the design of the game, and you can basically build any console game up this way. And uh, that's when, in April Fool Spirit, I started to get a little extra cheeky. So I think I... I'd have to go to the GitHub page, but I think I'm saying it's an uh, arcade console built with PowerShell or something to that effect. Uh, after you got the console together, the question is, can I build a game store? Because, you know, what modern console doesn't support a game store? And can I make, build it cross-platform? Because, you know, modern console gaming is all about cross-platform gaming, right? So, well, because of PowerShell Core, I can already build cross-platform. It'll run on Mac, Windows, and Linux. So, yay. And because we have the PowerShell gallery, I have a kind of backdoor to building a game store. Because one of the things I can ask from the PowerShell gallery when I find module is find me modules that match a particular tag. 
So if you go find modules that are tag power arcade, you can find like the three other games that exist in this ecosystem. But as a way to prove out the concept and have a bit of fun for April Fools and give something, you know, people could do while they're stuck at home with COVID or avoiding COVID, you know, that there are worse ways to spend a couple weeks. There might be better ones, but there are worse ones too. It's going to be immersion breaking for me. Next time I'm playing Skyrim and I'm fighting a dragon, I'm just like, oh, I just collided with a sprite. (laughs) I mean, yeah. (laughs) They just have better animations around it. I mean, like on a certain really practical level, logically, there's almost nothing stopping Power Arcade from actually powering a real arcade game or a real console game other than the rendering engine and depending on how advanced you'd want to get with your PowerShell, you could swap that out or if you wanted to get obscenely advanced you could actually take the logic from PowerShell and translate that into other languages and then actually have a real game in you know unity or something um this uh sort of came back up a couple weeks ago a a colleague of mine is going through a master's program and having to build a unity game for it and so i've got a bit of insight into how those are structured and i have also been working on this kind of crazy project to basically build a better mousetrap on top of powershell that is more translatable to other languages and embeddable in other languages and (laughs) i the guy told me to structure Unity games, and I just kind of laughed for a bit because I realized, like, oh, man. So basically, if I just finish this translation thing here, I can actually take the Power Arcade games that I already have, and I can turn them into Unity games. <laughs> so you heard it here first. If I end up wasting a few more weeks for a future April Fool's, like, that, that's what I might be doing. No, no hustle. Enough of the consulting. You're, you're now creating video games. Uh, look, if I could just get in on some AAA title royalty, I'm set for life. Well, And the nice thing about AAA is it doesn't have to be good. They just allow the users that are fans fix it for them. And then they could fix it in PowerShell. It'd be a wonderful, beautiful circle of life and employment for us all. <laughs> uh, again, I, I'm going to go back to the original caveat. I am not actually advocating for game design development in PowerShell primarily, (laughs) though I will also point out that PowerShell is very useful in game development as an adjunct tool. And I'll name a couple of games off the top of my head that have used it. Uh, Y'all ever heard of a game called Halo? A little bit. What about Borderlands? Borderlands. Both of those were used with PowerShell to automate masses of Xbox developer kits for testing. So, nice. you know, more places that PowerShell has been used that you don't necessarily know it, but that can give you an answer to your relatives. So what's this PowerShell thing? And where have I seen it? Okay, so just, you've seen it in the background of the boys, and you've seen it in, you know, the testing process of a couple of video games that you might play, or at least be aware of. Yeah, Tiny Tina's side quest wouldn't even be what it was without PowerShell. That's that's my new yeah. character. I've actually just now started playing Wonderlands and enjoying it quite a bit. 
which, you know, at this point in my life is kind of rare that I'm like, oh, I actually get into a new game. Same, same. I'm so, happy when that kind of thing does happen, though. I definitely enjoy the adventure. But yes, it's just fewer and farther between, you know, because Skyrim's a known known, right? Yeah. I, I struggled with Skyrim because that entire game franchise is one of the legendary PC game franchises. And then with Skyrim, they built it on console and poorly ported it to PC. So I, I was a slow adopter of Skyrim. I was very angry about uh, what they did with that one. Fair. I mean, that they've given you plenty of time to adopt, and I would kind of guess that now that Microsoft owns Bethesda, that might switch the pendulum back a bit. Maybe. Would, I mean, it would be nice. And, great and questions about what the future of gaming holds, and I don't know if I care about their answers anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's where I came in with. Just it doesn't matter what product to put out there, fans will fix it because now there's. Uh, Sky UI, which turns it back into a, as it should be, PC game. It's all right. Uh, well, if I could switch and go way back, I'm doing a way call back. Oh, sure. So, earlier, a lot earlier, Not, you mentioned out of power nobody. Arcade. Yeah, out of power arcade. Sorry, uh, is there anything no, else no, we wanted good. to say on? <laughs> no, no, we're good. Okay. I, I, I do. I enjoyed the few weeks. I enjoyed proving the concept, and I don't really end up thinking about it that much, even though it is, I guess, like my fourth or fifth most popular repo right now. Um, and definitely for our audience, I think it's really cool to see things like that in PowerShell because um, it's fun. You can get started quick. You can start interacting in your console and playing a little game, having some fun. And seeing yeah. people push the limits of PowerShell and do cool stuff is inspiring, really. I mean, it's not well, it's practically the most useful, but it is inspiring and it leads to creativity and people pushing their boundaries, which is really cool. Yeah. And I, I do hope to be a beacon for that sort of thing. I like to give people fun things that they didn't expect they could do in PowerShell. And if you wanted to be the board person in your data center or lab, uh, just switching over to place nibbles for a bit, I am not going to tell your boss. I, I promise there's, there's no like reporting from Power Arcade to tell your boss. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, spend your uh, working hours playing Power Arcade. Set the new high score. Um, but, I and also really cool should if... build leaderboards, but that's a different level of technical challenge. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Um, but yeah, if anyone in our audience wants a little fun challenge, and uh, a lot of times getting into PowerShell, there's like work projects, which take a lot of time and effort, and it can be fun to have just fun projects to dig around. And I looked through some of the code for this project, and it wasn't uh, too cumbersome i mean it's definitely more advanced for like a beginner but um this is definitely a project where you can kind of get your hands dirty see how things are working uh, maybe try creating your own game a little bit play around get kind of lost and push yourself to maybe a place you haven't been before um yeah uh, that cool. was one of its design goals is that ps invaders was just one big script and i was trying to figure out you know i i like to make good abstractions if you take uh Essentially, if you boil down what you're really trying to do into as small of amount of code as possible, and then you build kind of libraries that can work with that or scripts that will work with that, that can make things a lot easier to adopt and work with. And so Power Arcade is definitely a good example of that. Actually, there is one more thing to mention that is practical on this, and that is... Uh, 
you know, you just mentioned cracking open the project, say, looking at the directories and how they're structured. This is actually the same way you can write extended types, almost. Uh, I did kind of like that technique so much that I actually kind of baked it into the module that I used to write formatting and types, the easy out module. And so you can actually have a subdirectory of a given PowerShell module called types, and you can put your own types in that subdirectory. You can start declaring methods. You can start declaring properties. You can throw extra data files in there and easy out will basically scoop all those up, create you a types.ps1xml file that contains all those directories. And there you go. You can basically declare an object-oriented structure and do it all in little files on disk and not have to think about it that much. What's especially cool about this is you can also use that to augment uh, existing types. So you can build a types directory uh, for a type that already exists to extend it for yourself or for your module. And that uh, can make a lot of these things a little bit easier to work with. Like if you do find a particular, you know, object that you like working with or that does something useful, but that is kind of long-winded to be able to do it, then you can just basically add a script method that simplifies that to that type and use that in your code instead. Very cool. So uh, I guess one of the things that you had mentioned earlier, and it's a good thing to keep coming back to, programming and scripting is really about finding good reusable parts and using them effectively. So, you know, that this is a great little approach to doing that. It's also about repeatedly reusing your code and identifying the points where that's helpful. Like if you are doing the same sort of script five or six times, actually for me, three is where I start to consider it. But if you're doing the same thing again and again and again, you might want to consider writing a little script that just kind of encapsulates those steps so that you're doing a simpler thing. And that's kind of the, the process of abstraction of basically, hey, I have this hard-coded thing. I'm going to go ahead and make this an abstract representation of that thing so that I can reuse it again and again and again. I'm going to take this little script, turn it into a function. And that is a really powerful little decision to make. The more times you do that, the more likely you are to have, you know, something that you can kind of continue to build upon and use. So, yeah, it, keep doing that every day of your life and you're going to end up with a wonderful library of PowerShell and other functionality or wonderful collection of libraries of PowerShell and other functionality that you can build off of very quickly and you can keep getting better and better at your craft. Yeah. That's definitely a good thing to keep present in your career. And it really applies to a lot of things. Like I can, there's probably really good documentation on the internet that's like worth kind of keeping near you. Uh, maybe kind of using that as on the go reference uh, stuff. Or like if you have a particular regex, cre oh, I mentioned regex. Uh, uh -oh. That's fine. Uh, I I will say on the, the first point before we go into anything regex, uh, that Look, if you uh, are just starting scripting, if you're a relative newbie, inline help is your friend. 
one of the easiest ways to remember some random way you used a command that you wrote or a function that you wrote or a script that you wrote is just throw an example in at the top. Just add a dot help or synopsis that says what it's about, dot description, gives a longer version of what it's about, and start adding dot examples that show how you've used it in the past. And then that way, you're not like looking around for where did I keep this script or this script or this script that showed me how to use it. You're just making it so that you can say get help script dash examples and other people can too and that's really powerful because it helps you reuse your code figure out how to use your code and it helps others do the exact same thing without bothering you yeah that's a great tip if you're writing especially if you can get into the habit of doing it sooner than later and you can kind of trust that the stuff that you've written has whatever context is needed, it does make it so much faster to just quickly pick up some code you've used in the past, check the example, copy, pasta, keep moving. Yep. Um, that frees up your, I guess, brain energy to do more complex things. You don't have to kind of repeat the same energy on the same task year after year in your career. Yeah. And, you know, if you're lucky, you might actually get like past this tipping point where more of your professional time is spent answering questions you already know. Like, okay, I, I've got this tool that you help build. How do I use it? Is a way easier question to answer than, hey, I have this very unknown process. How do I figure out how to automate it? Because if you've done things right, most of the stuff you'll do will be variations on a theme. You build a good library around things, you build a good set of scripts to work with it, and you're going to find that your actual time working with it drops. That's the trade-off of automation. Like if you are doing things again and again and again in a very similar way, writing that script will not just save you the seconds, it will save others those seconds as well. And that has this nice multiplier effect. It might only be 10 or 15 seconds, but heck, if you add that up even four times, there, you're up to a minute. If it's something you were doing 40 times a week, you know, or 60 times a week, you are really kind of totaling up how much time you save pretty quickly. And if you do get enough of that together, then your job can become, hey, uh, how do I work with your tool? Oh, here's an example. Uh, and that is a nice point to be at aside from the boredom. Nice. So I feel like you were teeing me up with the regular expression thing. Were you, you, were know, you trying to tee me up? I don't think I really was. <laughs> Um, but I, I do know that you have uh, some regular expression projects. Um, but I actually wanted to bring up a separate topic. I wanted to do that callback to earlier, um, where sure. you mentioned that people don't use the ISC anymore. And that is definitely the perception that some people share. But from interacting with a lot of our audience, there's a lot of uh, an underrepresented group of people who are just kind of plugging along in the ISC, doing what kind of works for them. And they maybe haven't been exposed to this VS code thing or don't have maybe confidence in it or don't have anyone that they know. Maybe they think of it as a programmer exclusive. You have to be the elite of the elite to use it. Um, what do you uh, find advantageous? That would be an odd perception about VS code. <laughs> but well, okay. Uh, what you'd do be I surprised because there is, there is a learning VS curve code? to get into. To get into VS code, there is that learning curve of if this is your first um, IDE or whatever, like there are settings you kind of got to get down and to do 
to deal with settings in addition to like a language that may be a little bit more unfamiliar with you, like PowerShell, can be a little bit daunting. Uh, I suppose. Um, I don't really have a hardy I like iHeart VS Code at this point. It's much more in Windows 11. ISE went from you know not the best of ideas to unusable uh the find dialog focus steals now and and doesn't correctly find stuff uh it, it just doesn't work as well and i had to switch over because of that uh if you're still using the ISE you're welcome to try to muddle through uh the other thing that you're going to limit yourself with is that you're kind of stuck in that 51 syntax and i'm not saying you know core is everything um there's still definitely a lot of value to say the wmi commandlets that you can only get in five one um and that stated learning core is a great career investment and decision because it makes basically your knowledge of powershell more likely to be portable and you don't have to just be, you know, a Windows admin that is pretty good in PowerShell. You can be an admin that is good in PowerShell and can also work on Windows, Linux, and Mac. And you can learn to stumble your way through there, too. So I, I think that the major advantage is that uh, code encourages you to be on core and keeps you on a closer to latest and greatest core. Uh, it's a nice enough editor. Um, it's good for multiple languages whereas ISE really only kind of does basically xml text and powershell so i i don't know if it's a competition worth engaging in at this point uh i will you know say for those people that are still stuck in ISE um and and kind of maybe wanting to be there Look, I only moved over in the last couple of years and only because of the Windows 11 changes. And I got picked on for many years for this point. And on the pro side of things, like PowerShell is mostly PowerShell. Uh, the syntax for PowerShell has unfortunately not gone through some quantum leaps between, you know, 5.1 and 7. And so you're still going to be learning how to script in an environment you're comfortable with and be able to be functional as long as you don't upgrade to windows 11. But yeah, at that point, you're probably going to want to move to VS code just because you're going to get annoyed with the keystrokes. Sorry so, that that's probably a very unsatisfying answer, but no, for, for me to move to VS code took public shaming. Uh, okay. So it was, as I, I was a hardline ISC person just because I liked what I liked and it was all familiar. And so what we did, we did a webcast of someone who was a very strong advocate for VS Code. And I just basically, it was a hour live of me bringing up my gripes, well, it doesn't do this. And then, and her name was Celine. She's super smart. She's like, you're wrong. And here's how to do it. And <laughs> she basically, she basically walked me through configuring it to make it act close to uh, ISE while still having all of the uh, benefits of moving to VS Code. And, okay. and si since then, I haven't, sh I haven't shifted back. So maybe there needs to be some sort of no guide of for VS Code. Here's some steps you can follow to make it behave similar to ISE. Because for me, I just I am resistant to change. Uh, I mean, I can somewhat understand that. I will yeah, say so regarding the earlier thing that I kind of 
a little bit miss the scripted UI inline capabilities that I could do with the ISE, um, but not tons. Um, there, there are. There's also a color th- scheme you can use in VS Code to basically appear like ISE. I will also say one major thing, not really against VS Code, more against default settings. And this is a little bit controversial. By default, VS Code will uh, be set up to replace aliases with real command names. This is a setting that I very strongly believe should not be the default, uh, especially considering uh, smart aliasing. It is sometimes the case where you have an alias that actually means something being that particular alias instead of just points to a command. So um, it's possible to write functions and aliases together in such a way that, well, that there's a major difference between dir and ls, as an example. You know, so I don't like that setting. I don't think that setting should be on by default, and I make sure that people turn it off about as quickly as they can. that's the only major development gripe I've had against VS Code. The only other thing that has come up a lot is that the debugger can be, I guess a good way to describe it is can take some kicking. Um, and this is understandable uh, once you get a little bit of things. It's like sometimes with this sort of thing, it makes bizarro sense. Uh, the Visual Studio Code application that has kind of a, a, a Boolean setting for its debugger. It's either on or it's off, okay? Like, you're, you're either debugging or you're not. PowerShell, as a language, just has the debugger kind of on and constantly integrated. And so you go put a breakpoint in your file, it won't just randomly hit when you're running stuff on the console until you start debugging. And then that'll tell VS Code, hey, now I actually care if PowerShell had hit a breakpoint. And this is a little frustrating. But basically, put a breakpoint in, run the file that has the breakpoint, then go run whatever you'd like down at your terminal and your breakpoint will still be hit. So I, I do miss a couple of things about the ISE, but not enough to go back to I can't control F and find code. <laughs> I can say the biggest change for at the time for that fixed almost all of my performance related issues was using PowerShell Preview, which now everything in that is just in the PowerShell things. So the biggest performance hit I hit uh, came with requiring PowerShell Preview instead, but now a lot of that is already over there. I would still recommend using PowerShell Preview, just if nothing else, to give them data to work with. But the anymore, all of the performance issues that were fixed are now just in the main version of PowerShell. So I imagine a lot of the uh, pushback you get from that is is cleared up by default. Yeah, um, I I personally wouldn't probably find myself using preview versions that often. That's mainly because I don't want to have my environment diverge that much from what most users' environments might be. Uh, this is where I'm a little bit odd and that I tend to be pretty close to a defaults user. Um, the other reason is that uh, if I am building something on top of PowerShell, I don't want to be surprised when I'm building it on top of very new feature sets. 
my general goal when building PowerShell scripts at this point is still to be able to target basically anything north of version four. Uh, version four is when you have the colon colon new added and still basically something you can find about everywhere. So, um, but yeah, I, uh, don't really have to like kick people off of ISE if I see people using it. I don't feel that strongly. I just have finally succumbed to the public shaming pressure and moved over to code myself. I'm glad public shaming worked for both of us. Sort of. I mean, it helped. I'm a little bit shameless, but not that shameless. Do you use VS Code for other languages? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, more and more. Um, I, I suppose we might want to get into the crazy fun why uh, in not too long, uh, but um, I do find it to be a strength. <clears throat> the one that I think everybody would end up doing every day, even if they're not you know, doing anything but PowerShell uh, or almost anything but PowerShell is Markdown. There's an integrated Markdown preview, and that's a nice little ad there. Um, the other languages that VS Code supports are, well, it's a very long list, and it's constantly growing through expansion or extensions. So uh, beyond that, I guess since we're on the high-level topic, VS Code is free, and it's clearly a PR win enough for Microsoft that it's going to stay that way. So yeah, I why not take the better free editor? Yeah. Like you're mentioning, I, I definitely like just for PowerShell alone, VS code's cool, but I think the real lots of value comes when you start adding it to your tool belt and use it for JSON files. And when you're dealing with other languages and when you're writing some documentation in Markdown and so on and so forth, really kind of helps to cut down the context switching. And like you said, it's heavily invested in, and it's very likely that you're going to be able to access it at your current job and at your next job. Yeah. I uh, also consider it at this point in the same sort of category as learning and getting better at Git. It's a professional skill that will continue to be helpful. And that's two forks in the road we could go to. We could go to fun Git stuff, or uh, we could go to why I'm finding myself using other languages and code with PowerShell. Let's go to that second one, because I think we have a, an episode coming up about Git or Git. Because um, we haven't even introduced a lot of people to it yet, so. Okay, well, the, the second one's, uh, you know, a crazy but fun answer. Um, I have been, uh, for a long while, I have basically been kind of starting to question PowerShell's dogmas and to kind of see what else one can do with the language and see if I can't kind of fix some of the ecosystem problems we still have. Um, one of the ecosystem problems we still have is that PowerShell is still a little limited in terms of uh, non.NET ecosystems and how it works with them. Okay. Um, now, uh, over in another part of programming land is a language called Lua. And one of Lua's huge strengths is that it's easily embeddable. Okay. And this isn't quite hitting that target yet because that target's hard to hit. Uh, but what 
I can do at this point in 27 languages and counting is I can embed a bit of comments or uh, in Markdown's case, a sort of specialized pre-formatted code and basically have your document be another language than PowerShell with bits of PowerShell inside that return that other language. So I can write C sharp with tiny bits of PowerShell that return C sharp. And this is really huge, actually. Uh, if you look at your average code sample of like, how do I implement some class or something, right? It's, it's hard coded. I have to go take that sample and I have to take out the parts that are your example and change that to be what is what I'm actually trying to do. And I can now write that same example, but have little PowerShell script blocks inside, have parameter blocks inside of those script blocks, pass parameters to the file, and have it generate my uncustom version of that example, stubbing out every part of code that needs to be stubbed, and filling in every other part with whatever I desire. And this gives me a roadmap to implement anything on top of PowerShell with PowerShell really quickly. Uh, if I okay. wanted to, um, well, let's take something kind of under some intellectual discussion, okay? If I wanted to represent different units of measurement, like miles, feet, kilometers, right? Grams, pounds, etc. Okay. I can have a, a base class that represents that unit. And each individual class representing a unit would be very small because it doesn't really need to know that much. It just needs to know what it can convert to and, and how to convert it. Okay. And if I can make that implementable with some PowerShell script, then I can just have a PSD1 file or a XML file describing, okay, here are miles. Here's how miles can be to convert to feet. Here's kilometers. Here's how they convert to miles and feet. Here's feet, how they can, and so on and so forth. And I can pipe that in, get a whole bunch of C-sharp code that implements those classes, and actually then start to program in miles or feet. And if we go back again to the PowerShell side of things, and again, this is discussing the possible, not the currently there, but it is definitely a direction that I'm moving. Um, you know how we can do like one kilobyte, two kilobytes, 2.5 kilobytes, or three petabytes in PowerShell? If, if new right. bees are listening and they don't know this, this is great. So you can basically say like, you know, what's 2.5 gigabytes divided by one kilobyte? right and this will work this will run in powershell and produce a numerical result it's great uh you could build this for any unit if you did a bit of creative language hacking you could basically make 10 miles plus two kilometers plus six feet plus 1.5 meters return an actual number doing all conversions for you like that PowerShell could become a much more potent and uh, natural syntax than it already is. And you could do this in such a way that doesn't involve redundantly writing a million and one C-sharp classes because you have the that for you. You just have to see those C-sharp classes, the tiny part that changes. So 
that's the high level of, of, of number two. I can embed PowerShell in the source code of a lot of different languages, 27 different languages. And, and I can use that to generate that source code and then compile it in a parameterized way and do whatever I like. Um, in just off the top of my head, uh, C sharp, uh, Python, uh, C++, Kotlin, which is the language, uh, Kotlin and Java, the languages that are used in Android. Um, trying to think what other major one worth mentioning, uh, Markdown, JSON, YAML, all those are supported at this point. It's a really, really fun uh, capability to have added. And uh, I've already kind of started to, you know, let that bear fruit because I've started to basically take a bunch of different modules, readme markdowns and make them readme.ps1.md and all right, include the list of commands, link all of that up, include the exact number of extensions that I have for this module. You know, don't, there are lots of this. No, there are 114 expressions in regular, regular right now. You know, this is uh, the sort of nice change that you can have to your project by basically using PowerShell to build other languages than PowerShell. Interesting. Uh, do you is there like a proof of concept of this? Because yeah, have this to is this called TypeScript. Like and uh, again, we will put the links in the chat or show notes. Uh, you can go to GitHub.com/slash/start-automating/slash/typescript. And this is a very nascent project. It's very really new um but it is basically building a new programming language on top of powershell and making it live in a lot more places than powershell and trying to make powershell easier while we're at it for developers and scripters alike although i will say in that order wow that is pretty cool that is pushing the bounds of my understanding of things so um that is yeah awesome. that, is, that is uh trying to play a new ball game on top of this ball game yeah it's or, definitely a, it's gone over my head but i am i'm curious <laughs> to see, to see like i heard lewis like oh yeah roblox and that's after that <laughs> uh yeah i maybe i'm dating myself here but i've not played roblox only minecraft and only before minecraft went like multiplayer shooter so uh, I haven't either. It's uh, my daughter's learning. Uh, she's in a scripting program where they teach her basically how to interact with games. So they start with Java, then Lua, then C Sharp. So it's Minecraft and Roblox. I've, no, I've never played it. I just knew Lua did that because of the class she's taking. Got it. Some of the end goals would be being able to do that sort of thing in basically PowerShell. It just wouldn't technically be the PowerShell runtime. It would be what was PowerShell translated into whatever source language, which mm. you can do because PowerShell has this massively cool thing called the abstract syntax tree where every other program in the language, when I'm looking at like a call stack, I'm looking at exactly, you know, here's a big blob of text and I'll tell you what line went wrong, right? In, in PowerShell, I can actually go essentially look at every aspect of your source code before it runs. And I can transform that in a million different ways. So PowerShell syntax is incredibly powerful, partially because it is self-discoverable. I can actually walk through what you're doing in a script, 
step-by-step, statement-by-statement, pipeline-by-pipeline, and I can basically translate that into other languages or into more advanced PowerShell. So this gives you the capability to do all sorts of crazy fun things. That's awesome. It kind of reminds me of Crescendo in a certain certain way. Please don't. Uh, <laughs> it, this is not at all like Crescendo and well beyond it. Uh, crescendo is just kind of, I'm going to help you build some wrappers for some Xs. This is, I'm going to let you rewrite any aspect of the PowerShell language, and I'm going to let the PowerShell language live in more places. And in the places that it lives, I will automatically take whatever you have and automatically run through all the different ways you said to rewrite it. And some of these ways are simple, uh, easy, like additions, uh, like, um, I don't know how much general support I'll get from scripters on this, but one of the things that drives developers, especially nuts about PowerShell to this day, why can't I just say new blah? Why do I have to say new dash object or get the type colon colon new or create? Why can't I just say new int? Well, I can in PipeScript. I can actually go look and say, okay, I have this keyword new. Its first argument was a type. So this type is creatable. So I'm going to go translate that into type colon colon new. I can also move beyond that and say, well, something PowerShell does not. Hey, this type has a create method. And now I can say something like new script block. Here's a string. And it will create the script block and have a more natural syntax around the same experience. Uh, so that's a, a little one in the way more advanced category of what you can do. Um, one of the things that I've had fun kind of proving out over the last few years is how elastic. PowerShell syntax is. Um, one of my generally fun examples of this is that a URL can be a command. Like if you copy and paste what's in your browser down to the terminal and just hit enter, that will generally say, I cannot run this URL because it's not a known command. Because the whole of a URL is actually a valid command format in PowerShell. And this opens up the door to something very obvious, which I've already kind of walked through, uh, which is I can now have a command in TypeScript, which basically is a URL, but will become invoke rest method. So you just type, you know, httpsgoogle.com, and it will become invoke rest method google.com. Wow. And you can start assigning that and using that or for each, you know, result in HTTPS, yada, yada, yada. You can use it, it in loops. It, it's great. It's a little big shift in how you use, you know, protocols. But the cooler thing about this is that it wouldn't just be HTTP. In fact, I could have a protocol of my own making. I could have my protocol colon slash slash script lock, script lock, script lock. I could define new protocols in PowerShell and make them be handled essentially in unique and interesting ways. Um, this is actually especially useful in all sorts of facets in the 
really webby kind of context, well, if I build an MQTT protocol, congratulations, everything that we have around the home that's, you know, something I can work with with MQTT, every smart device that your Alexa can talk to, that's going through MQTT, basically. And if I can just crack that cookie open wide with one generic, when you see MQTT colon slash slash, go look up this code, go add a much more complicated PowerShell code that would actually talk to MQTT and run your script. That'd be fantastic. I would be able to actually easily harness all the devices around my home with, so would you, without writing all the boilerplate code every time. The more interesting other simple one or uh, the interesting other simple ones around the home would be like WebSocket or UDP. Being able to have protocols for that would open up easier programming against either of those things, make it simpler for your average scripter to go walk up to a WebSocket and start talking to it in PowerShell. That'd be great. Um, you could also use this as a way to run other languages. So if I have some Node application, right, I should be able to run Node, hopefully in a way that will return JSON, and I should basically be able to spawn off the executable to do that, get back the results in a very consistent way, and then have a protocol like Node colon, sl colon slash slash, here's your script that is actually Node. And by having that in there, it can go run that bit of node script inline, return back to the PowerShell that you're running. And that could be really huge because right now, PowerShell is a fantastic ecosystem, sort of limited by the boundaries of .NET. And I say sort of because we can kind of, you know, use some trickery to get around that, but uh, that trickery does become sufficiently complicated that I wouldn't want everybody to know it off the top of their head. I would much rather give people the abstraction to just, hey, you want to talk to the devices like Alexa talks to them? Go for it. You want to talk to a UDP device? Go for it. You want to embed a little bit of Node because your colleague works with Node? Sure, you can have some Node living in a PowerShell script. Why not? It's really just a matter of how much complication is involved in how calling Node and how you can abstract that away so that your average scripter, or even myself, is not copying and pasting that from script to script to script. So I'm, I'm curious how uh, security people that where PowerShell is often used, like, is this like a nightmare scenario for them? Because PowerShell is often used for this, but if you're using PowerShell embedded in other languages, it becomes even that much more difficult to track in a, in a um, scenario, or is it something where it'd be difficult to implement in, in that way? This is a good question and a complicated one to answer. Uh, <laughs> right now, at this exact moment, uh, your exposure is basically the same as PowerShell proper. Uh, if you are running, you know, uncontrolled PowerShell on your box, things can go wrong for you right? Especially if you're running as admin. Please don't. Um, if you are aware of what it's doing, uh, great. If you are dealing with uh, a incident, an incident, and you needed to kind of do some forensic investigation, there is enough around PowerShell 
at this point in auditing that it it's not so easy to hide um you have i believe auditing whenever you are creating script blocks dynamically or compiling code with add type and both of these are something that typescript is doing often well creating script blocks a lot right now add type not so much um but to that degree you would definitely on the box that originates it, you would have a lot of notification. Now, if I can get to the point where I can translate your average power shell into C sharp, that becomes a better question from security perspective, because at that point, um, well, the question is, has C sharp done the auditing legwork that PowerShell has? Because otherwise, you know, you're just getting a DLL and that DLL could, do whatever C sharp could do. And PowerShell might have been the thing used to write the DLL, but there's not any PowerShell left in that DLL. If that distinction sort of kind of makes sense. So, so it, it might be a bit of a nightmare for them, but that nightmare would be in the same category of nightmare as any other language that's been, you know, dynamically compiled should have to go through. And I would be a little surprised to see Sharp in particular didn't have similar auditing. But if they don't, this could be a nice forcing factor. <laughs> I also I see don't that want it's that listed to be the as end a GitHub of our action. Time, <laughs> no. Yes. Uh, um, it is listed as a GitHub action. Many of the modules that I produce nowadays are. Uh, you can just go ahead and reference this to GitHub action and build whatever files in your repository. That is how I'm building the, taking the PS1 MDs that are in that repository and turning them into MDs, into markdown files. Um, that's also how I've started to experiment around building C-sharp classes uh, with this sort of inline. One really common use I found in that in development is just adding a little bit of PipeScript to my namespace to give it a random number at the end. Uh, so that I can basically keep rebuilding, keep recompiling it without getting that. Uh, if you've ever done add type twice, you'll, oh, it, it didn't quite work the first time. And now I have a type by that name. So add type won't work. So that, that can be a little frustrating for development. So randomizing the namespace just gets me around that problem. Um, it is, it's really powerful tooling and I am, uh, at a very joyful beginning of understanding what I can do with it, which is, side note, one of the best, most fun parts about good tool and framework development. Um, when you set out to build something to abstract something else into something easier to use for other people, sometimes you have a very concrete set of, like, this will become easier, and that's it, sort of goals. Other times, you're just kind of opening up this capability. What would happen if I made regex is more easy? What would happen if I made it easier to rebuild your PowerShell syntax into whatever other PowerShell syntax? And the answers will continue to surprise you. Um, one of the other little things that I was able to uh, fix, um, PipeScript supports double equals. I don't know if you've ever run into the developer or scripter that is dollar a double equals you know dollar b somewhere in their script and because powershell will normally present that error as 
the equals operator is not a command. People can just go up the wall trying to find the one, two character error in PowerShell. And now I can basically run that through a particular compilation process that'll say, turn double equals back into D-EQ. And you can just code and not think about these sorts of things. It's it's a really, really fun project because it kind of has opened up so many doors and will kind of continue to open up doors over time. It's also still very curious. With PyScript, one of the things you mentioned was your your home automation. And I know you gave a talk at Summit about home automation. Did you do all that in PowerShell or did you kind of showcase some of your PypeScript with with your your lesson on that one? Uh, All that in PowerShell. Although I have since built... uh, a new functionality in that with PypeScript. Um, so one of the the cool things that you can do in PypeScript is basically write a function that uses a REST API without writing a single line of actual code. So you can just kind of declare what REST API it's talking to and let it implement the REST. Um, and I had gotten some new fans because of a heat wave recently, and I had gotten some new lights to install on the fans. And then I discovered that my, uh, module for automating my lights, uh, light script did not have the capability to add new lights to my bridge in my hue bridge. So I added that, uh, using pipe script, uh, and it's all of, I think 20 or 30 lines that generates about 150. Okay. So there's a current proof of concept of that exact technology. Uh, Summit was actually kind of a inspiring, uh, well, conference, Summit. Uh, I'm sorry, that got a little redundant. Uh, <laughs> because um, there was enough interest in all the game-breaking PowerShell stuff that I had been doing that I got inspired to... Sp- spend the time and effort to actually build the transpiled language on top of PowerShell that I've been talking about for some time. The idea of, of doing this sort of thing has been kind of banging around in my head for at least the past couple of years. I've just been trying to like figure out enough form to give it and post summit got inspired enough with the exact form to kind of get most of the grunt work done. And then, uh, got to a certain point, I think a couple months ago, where I did not feel it was anywhere near perfect yet, but I did feel like I'd gotten a sufficient level of complexity that I had to make it public and start releasing because I wanted issue tracking. Which is another great reason to adopt Git for everybody, by the way. If you uh, if you aren't already publishing your code externally, there's not great reasons not to, unless your your boss is going to fire you for it. Doing some open source stuff is a wonderful boon to your career, and it is a great way to get uh, your game slowly but surely to improve, because if I'm trying to do something really complicated and I don't have issue tracking and I don't have source control, I am eventually going to shoot myself in the foot, not remember exactly what I was trying to do or exactly how to you know fix it. So PypeScript... Uh, started coming out a couple months ago for that exact reason. I just got to a sufficient level of complexity that while I don't want to consider myself anywhere near done, I did want to manage that complexity and have it out in you know, the public eye. 
So you should be able to do quite a number of interesting things with that project over time. It's just the exact bounds of its capability are not yet clear because it's so new. But again, I can rewrite any portion of valid PowerShell to be anything else. So the sky's kind of the limit. Uh, this is really cool. And this is, man, congratulations. This is quite the achievement, um, both of technical and a bit of creative prowess. Um, really you. cool. I'm excited to see where this goes. Me too. And I like being excited about where projects could go. And that's what's kind of another value of putting it up live is someone out there is going to have an idea with this that you wouldn't have thought of that takes it to a new level. That's that's kind of the what's cool about PowerShell is it's always used in new and exciting ways. And this feels like one of those things that uh, as it gets adopted, you're going to see more and more value and things you wouldn't have thought of come to life with it. Yeah. And actually, I want to underline something really important here. Um, you can also extend PowerShell in any way you'd like. Um, the designs that I've been doing for the last year or so have been kind of inherently extensible. I don't really produce that many modules where there's not some sort of this command could be any number of other commands sort of thing. And when I do that, I generally am allowing any module that tags that module to include extensions. And so if um, in PypeScript, the, the way that you're rewriting files is done as a PSX PS1 file. PSX PS1 files basically take a portion of the abstract syntax tree from the pipeline, and that's what they're saying they're going to be able to transmute, be able to change into something else. And they can use a validate script on the whole thing to say that this is valid for this context. So I can change a command, but only if that command is await. By the way, there's an await operator in there now, too. Anyway, um, so I can change a command, but only if it's called this. Or I can change uh, a series of pipelines, but only if the middle step is equals. Or if they're all the same command. Or, you know... Honestly, I could make a validate that says I will do this, but only on a Tuesday or it will only run on Friday the 13th. You can do anything you'd like in a validation here and say this particular transpiler is or isn't valid. But inside of there, basically all you're doing is taking whatever context you had and returning a script block. And that's basically a really fancy find and replace. So I've got my abstract syntax tree representing the command, say, await. And await will have it followed by, I mean, hopefully, some member invocation expression, something that is going to return something that I'm going to await, right? And so I can make sure that that part's syntactically valid, yell at you if it's not, thus stopping building. And I can actually then replace that await code with what you need to do to await that return. And all that that little transpiler needs to care about is how to deal with a weight. doesn't need to know about anything else. Um, on the extensibility flip side of it, uh, there's a module I've had for a while now called PS Minifier. And this is uh, as beautiful, sometimes useful, and evil as it sounds. It minifies PowerShell code. It takes whatever long PowerShell script you had, and it removes as much white space as it can and produces the most compact, runnable code it, it, it can. Uh, this is useful 
but to make it something that I could basically transpile or compile with with PypeScript, all I needed to do was write a PSX PS1 inside a PS Minifier that just ran compressed script lock, which is the command that does the minification, and compressed script lock already returns a script lock, win-win. So all right, I minify the code, I return you back the script lock of the minified code. And now if you load up PypeScript and you load up minif- or PS Minifier, you can just tell any function section of your code, any script block within your code, just put bracket minify in front of it, and that will become minified. So yeah, there's this could be used to be so much the uh, code golf. Uh, I think I could very much cheat at code golf this way. Yes. The problem with this and code golf is that the import module for PypeScript is, you know, probably going to send you past some golf like Mm. min bars. Hey, if if you get PypeScript to be considered as a valid language for golf, then most definitely (laughs) it would be a competitor. (laughs) That's very cool. Um, Definitely check out the link to that in the show notes. Um, and also, just in general, your GitHub has a ton of interesting projects. So definitely check those out. There's Yeah, 40. I also feel like I need to come back to one of the ones you teed up, sort of, which is uh, irregular. If you don't like regexes but still have to use them or want to up your regex game a little bit, irregular is a great module. It allows you to use, I believe, 114 regular expressions as uh, a name pattern. So you basically say question mark. Uh, less than, name of regex, greater than, and you can just use this as a PowerShell command. You don't have to actually know how the regex was built. So I can say dir dot recurse filter star dot ps1 pipe to uh, basically question uh, greater than or less than PowerShell underscore requires greater than, and I can get every ps1 file and all of the requirements that each of them have. I can do that for help fields as well. I can look over all given text in the directory and find unredacted or redacted social security numbers or phone numbers. Uh, there are a lot of useful regexes in this library in this um, module already. And you can also use new regex to write your own in a fluent pipeline. So you can pipe new regex into new regex into new regex. And it's got nice parameters for all the character classes that exist in regex and for look aheads and look behinds and regex conditionals and all this evil, horrible regex crap that none of us not wants to remember, but kind of vaguely knows exists. Well, yeah, regular can help you build all of that out and manage that in a module and also, you know, just use on the command line. So it's a, it's a great toy to check out. Awesome. Also, just had a release this weekend. Although that nice. honestly isn't saying something or that much. Uh, I just built a script that told me uh, how many releases I'm doing in a year and a month. And in the last 30 days, I have done 25 releases. So, yeah. Wow. What's one more or one less? I, I, for one, enjoy going to Regex 101, spending three hours not getting the proper Regex query, and then uh, throwing my hands up and sending it over to someone who's smarter than me. Well, uh, I mean, I don't mean to, like, open the floodgates that broadly, but there is a <laughs> issue template on Irregular for request to Regex. 
because I mean, at this point, I I used to really kind of fear regexes, and I've kind of gotten over my fear over the years and realized slowly but surely I've gotten really kind of scarily good at them. So at this point, it's like, okay, so you want me to parse Jason as regexes? All right. Okay. I, I think I can do that. Isn't, you're not going to want to see the regex, though. <laughs> and I believe a regular does have JSON property, which you could just basically give a name of the property, go to a JSON file, get exactly where that property is used. Again, you don't really want to see the regex. You can, but you definitely probably don't want to write it. Uh, you are welcome to view its source, which is, again, an, a nice new regex, pipe to new regex, pipe to new regex, pipe to new regex, fluent pipeline. So, yeah, regular is also great. So let's see, just running back through the cool modules we've discussed. PipeScript helps you rewrite the whole PowerShell language. Power Arcade gives you something to do at work while you're bored and is kind of a cool proof of concept. Easy Out uh, gives you the way to write formatting and types files around PowerShell. And these are a really powerful way to make your code more usable and easy. Um, that's the name. I think we just talked about a regular great way to work through your regexes. We alluded to UGit, which is a tool to uh, return objects from Git instead. Uh, but I don't think we got into it. Am I missing one? This is the thing about having like so many modules is you, you don't remember all of the modules. Show you UI. Have, you have 40. Show you UI. So. <laughs> yeah, and I've still got like 120 modules on my box that I haven't released, at least. And it sounds like, at least on the projects, you're open to feedback. Um, so oh, definitely, yeah. if you're going to check out these, leave some feedback. Indeed. Um, but yeah, this is there's a whole bunch of stuff here to get your hands dirty and to, to look at. I definitely at least recommend checking through 10 of these and reading the, the readmes and kind of seeing if something piques your interest and, and dive in if it does. Um, you know, PowerShell's a language that is best if you use it regularly. And finding fun excuses that align with your interests to dive deeper into PowerShell is always welcome and will usually benefit you in some ways yeah. at least. And I'm also very open to challenges. You know, I'm uh, if you're on the PowerShell Discord, you're always welcome to at me and ask me interesting PowerShell questions and see if uh, I have interesting PowerShell answers for you. If I don't already have a good one, you might, you know, inspire a cool tool. And your name is Start Automating on there, right? That's right. Yep. Awesome. And that's where we can find you on Twitter. It's your website. Uh, at James Brew on Twitter. And oh, start dash automating is the website, which I really need to update one of these days. Though I have been starting to do GitHub pages for about every project too. Nice. Yeah, I'm also, thinking one uh, more module for the pile that's done with a module called Help Out, which is kind of like Platypus, but unlike Platypus, you know, it actually accepts PRs and moves. Sorry, that was that's a bit of a burn. Um, but. <laughs> Uh, help out has been used to generate markdown documentation around a given uh, set of commands and include asset files into your docs directory or wiki directory and also is available as a GitHub action. So at this point, I'm just basically setting up a fairly boilerplate CI CD and getting like four or five bells or whistles ready to go. Awesome. Yeah. So well, 
I, I know we started off, we, we tried to go into the shallow end, but uh, there's, there's a lot of deep dive stuff here. It seems to be that if you're looking to learn something new, going through a lot of your GitHub is a great place to at least inspire yourself or, or give, get ideas on where, where to go next in your PowerShell journey. Yeah, it wouldn't be the world's worst place. And uh, if you're not quite sure where PowerShell could take you, like I said, reach out. I'm always happy to try to inspire. Um, it has, again, been a battle and a life's work for, at this point, 16 years and counting. I really love expanding out what PowerShell can do and expanding the PowerShell community and making it so that we can all do cooler things and maybe even earn better money doing cooler things. Uh, so, you know, reach out if you want help in either of those aspects. Awesome. Yeah, I got fantastic news for you. What? You uh, are one of the rare few that gets a front seat to watch Andrew, the master of shilling, just <sighs> lay down a work of art. All right. Get ready. If you made it to the end of the episode, if you enjoy what we're doing, if you like the tips that James gave, he shared his perspective, he shared his projects. Um, to me, my mind's a little bit blown. Um, very inspiring stuff. If you enjoyed what you heard today, leave us a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice. As James mentioned earlier, give us a like, give us a comment, give us a subscribe, all that happy stuff. If you have questions, you want to say hello, you uh, want to engage with us, PowerShell at PDQ.com, or you can um, hit us up on at PowerShell Pod. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thanks to James for joining us today. Thanks to my co-host, Jordan, for crushing it despite being sick, showing up for this weekly podcast that we keep cranking out for this amazing community that we're so fortunate to be part of. Um, thank you all. And thanks to everybody. This The last episode, there was an issue with it going out on Monday on our provider's side. Thanks to everyone who reached out. Really appreciate that. It's awesome to know that people are listening. And if I could throw on a couple of bonus shows real quick, uh, again, it's github.com slash start automating. It's the main spot to look at all these projects. Uh, it's not quite like share and subscribe, but if you find it interesting, please star it. If you have a problem with it, please find an issue or file an issue. This is the currency of GitHub and I want more of it. So star what you like, complain about what you don't. And that, that's my shell. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plough. It all makes sense now. <laughs> the PowerShell Podcast is a production of BDQ.com. <laughs>